guys. As soon as it was announced, Hunter leans over and he's like, I knew that we're in love. <laughs> we're raising some perceptive kids. <laughs> well, we're continuing the Introducing God series this morning. And if you think it's been going a little bit too long, you should be glad we didn't start in Genesis 1. Because there is a real sense in which the Introducing God series could be a book-by-book, verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. Because the Bible was given to us by God in order for God to introduce himself to us. So no matter what the name of the next series is, it's an Introducing God series. And so this morning we want to meet God again and to respond to him. I want to begin by reading this simple little verse that many of us know from 1 Corinthians 10. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask God that you would continue to manifest your presence here with us. That you would give power and penetration to your word that you would allow us to continue worshiping as we have begun the service by singing to you and giving you praise. Allow us to continue our worship by coming under the authority of your word and listening to what you have to say and receiving the truth. And help us to respond faithfully to your word. Lord, do that because you alone can do it. Make our hearts freshly receptive this morning to all that you're going to say for your glory. Amen. Well, Pastor Mark Driscoll, many of you maybe have heard of him. He's a pastor in Seattle, Washington. He's an author of a few books. He's doing a lot of good work up there in Seattle. He was counseling with a man in his church who was addicted to viewing sensual images on his computer. And uh, the sum up of his counsel to this man said something like this. It was worship that got you into this. And it will be worship that gets you out of it. It sounds a bit strange, and I'm sure he went on to explain what he meant by that, but why not just tell the guy about covenant eyes? You know, about finding an accountability partner, about getting some software for his computer to help protect the guy from temptation. Or, or how about talk to him and say, hey, look, listen, bro, next time you're tempted to view those images, think about this. You're sowing distrust into your marriage. You're sowing things that will be destructive in the life of your family. Is that what you want? And he's going to, of course, say no. That that wouldn't be any surprise. That's effective counsel. That's well-rounded counsel. We should get to those kind of on-the-ground, red-blooded issues and say those sorts of things to one another to speak the truth in love. But pull the worship card on this guy? I mean, how can something as vague and impractical and spiritually oriented as worship help someone who's addicted to lust or bound in anger or jealousy or vain imaginations or locked in patterns of fear trying to prophesy about the future and what's going to happen? How does something like worship help Real issues in life. Happily, the Bible is, and we've discovered this week after week, really no matter what sermon series, that the Bible is not an abstract book of facts and principles about God. A lot of what we learn about God in the scriptures, we learn as God is on the move. 
as he is speaking and creating and judging and destroying and rescuing, saving, forgiving, sustaining. He's doing all these things and we're watching him do it and we're getting theology from the Bible in all of those stories and all the drama of each story in the Old Testament and each epistle and gospel in the New Testament. But God is not revealing himself to us so that we can have our curiosities satisfied or so that we can write interesting books about him. He is revealing himself for a reason, and that reason is this. He reveals himself to his people so that we might worship him. That's the purpose for which God has inspired all of the passages in our Bible. Let me ask you this, as we begin, get into this text in just a moment. Have you ever wondered why it is that you exist? What is God's purpose for your life? Sure, we could all say, we all exist to bring glory to God. We all exist to worship. But what does that look like for you? Does that look any certain way for you or for me? And so you could answer that question, or I could answer that question from a number of different angles. Practical angles. I could say, in a sense, I exist to love my wife. In other words, my marriage is not disconnected from my worship. I express worship through marriage. Any time that a Christian husband serves or sacrifices for his wife, that is an aroma, a fragrant offering to God that brings God glory. There's a sense in which you could say, if you're a parent, I exist. God has purposed for me specifically in my season of life to train my children, to love them, to care for them, and that brings God glory. These are concrete ways that we bring glory to God. You could say, in a sense, I could say, I exist to engage my calling and my vocation with passion and with diligence. And that would be true for everyone in this room. God has a specific purpose of what worship looks like in your life and in my life. And if you want to know what those are, think about what are your relationships? What's your season of life? What gifts has God given you? What's your vocation? Begin there. And God is clarifying what worship looks like. But the ultimate motivation... We have to get this. The ultimate motivation behind the doing of all those things ought to be that you do your work, you attend your school, you honor your parents, you raise your kids, you love your wife or your spouse for the glory of God because that's what we were made to do. We were made for this purpose, this is in your outline, to ceaselessly enjoy and reflect the glory of God in everything we do. You may notice in that statement, which seems really simple, there is a huge thorn. Do you see which word is a giant thorn? Ceaselessly. (laughs) That is a barbed statement. This is where our worship problem comes in. To give God glory occasionally, even to give God glory often, let's say it that way, even to give God glory often is serious sin because it falls short of giving him the glory that he really deserves. And because God is only pure and perfectly faithful and righteous in all that he does, he deserves worship from people who perfectly trust him, perfectly obey him. That's where our worship problem touches down. There's a sense in which 1 Corinthians 10.31 is a cute verse to stick on your fridge, but it is not just a cute verse. It is a verse that can be deadly. (laughs) I mean, it's hard to think of a verse in the Bible that is more potentially condemning than the verse that says, even if you're eating something, 
even if you take a sip of orange juice, you're supposed to do it for the glory of God? Everything done for the glory of God? The reality of my life is not a day goes by that I'm not chewing on thoughts that are about my glory. That I'm not speaking or not speaking depending on which best advances my glory. And so I have a worship problem. Really, Jeff's message, which was outstanding, Jeff's message was for me last week. The rest of you could have stayed home. Thanks for the moral support. Glad you were here. So, so, as we come to chapter 43, what does God do for misdirected worshipers like you and me? What does God say to us, to people who are locked in selfishness or in pride or in fear or in lust or a host of other things that are displeasing, dishonoring to the God who made us? I think the answer to that question is found in Isaiah 43. I think God comes to just these kinds of people, to the kinds of people like we are. So let's read with that in mind. Follow along with me. We're not going to read all the verses. I'll come back and pick up on some parenthetically later in the message. Verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. Skip ahead to verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Israel has a worship problem. The audience to which Isaiah is writing has a worship problem. She often did. (laughs) You read the Old Testament, there's a sense in which the Old Testament is a chronicle of the worship problem of Israel. 
But in fairness, and in her defense, it's not like she was the only one with a worship problem. She was only doing what everybody else was doing. The nations all over seemed to have this internal instinct, this urge inside them to reach for someone, something, really anything other than the one true and living God. And that was Israel's urge to go after other gods. So here's the question. Why does the Bible so often, especially the Old Testament, single out Israel's worship problem when in reality everybody else was doing the very same thing? And I think the answer comes in verse 1 of our passage. The answer goes something like this. Israel's worship problem is singled out because in the mercy of God, Israel has been singled out and chosen as special to God. Verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, Oh, Israel. We're going to spend a little bit more time on this point than the other one, so don't get nervous when this one takes a little bit longer. We need to do some background work to see the context of what gets us to Isaiah 43. God is not actually, when he says he created you, O Jacob, and formed you, O he's not actually talking about literally the creation providentially residing over the conception of every human being who is in the lineage of Jacob. It's not talking about literally creating. He's using covenant language. He's using the language of, I've sectioned you off as a people. I've formed you as an entity, as a nation. I've made you a people. They would have been called Jacobites if it wouldn't have been for the fact that God renamed Jacob Israel. And so God makes promises to this little tribe, this little family tribe. He makes promises to each of the patriarchs of that tribe, to Abraham, and then he has a son, Isaac. God makes promises to Isaac, then he has a son, Jacob, and God makes promises to Jacob. In other words, in the same way that there was a time in Genesis 1 where the world was dark and void and there was nothing there, and God spoke and suddenly everything was coming into being, all that we see. So there was a day when you could look across the world and you could see peoples and nations scattered everywhere and God said, I'm choosing Jacob and his offspring and I'm making them a nation, not just a nation, a holy nation, not just a holy nation, my nation. These are my People. These are covenant words. A people created has to do with the covenant that God has made with his people. And you know something of the history. He makes promises to the patriarchs. They go off. They're rescued from famine through Joseph. They go to Egypt. They thrive in Egypt. And then they're growing in number. And the Pharaoh and the leaders in Egypt start to get nervous because there are so many Israelites in this area. If they get a mind to take over this place, they could probably do it. And so they subjugate the people of God. And cause them to be their slaves. And then they say, all right, let's take out all the Hebrew boys that are born and kill them so that we don't end up with a war on our hands. And so God rescues these people through Moses. Remember this? He takes them through the Red Sea. He takes them to the base of Mount Sinai where they have, if you will, a destination marriage ceremony. (laughs) Where God joins himself in covenant to his people. And the laws that come to this nation that God creates at Mount Sinai come directly from God. In other words, the king of this nation of homeless people wandering through the desert is God himself. 
He is the husband of this people. He is the king of this people. He makes covenant with them. Look at this quote from John Oswald. In Egypt and at Sinai, God had taken a disparate people whose only commonality was an ancestor and had made them into a nation. They had not become a nation through the long, slow processes of history like other nations, but had been forged in an instant through the will and activity of God alone. In other words, God did something with Israel that he didn't do with any other nation in the Old Testament. And in just a moment, in Isaiah 43, in our very passage, God is going to use explicit language to distinguish his people, the people he's created, from all other nations, from Egypt in particular. God is making it clear, you are my people. Now we're going to see Israel's got a worship problem that makes this amazing grace for God to speak this way to the people who were misdirected in their worship as Israel was. But Knowing that that's about to happen, look at the language God uses in speaking with his people. The affectionate, deeply relational language. Verse 1, I've called you by my name, you are mine. Verse 2, I will be with you no matter what. He uses different images for that, personally shielding you from that which would destroy you. Verse 3, I am your savior. Verse 4, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Verse 5, I am with you. Verse 6, you are my sons, my daughters. Verse 7, you are called by my name. In verse 12, and actually another, another few places in this chapter, he demonstrates, we've got history. I'm not some upstart of you. I'm not some upstart king who's just taken control. I've been walking with you faithfully for years. Verse 15, I am your holy one, your king. This is the people God has created for himself. He's made covenant with these people. But we need to know the people that God has created and formed are blind. There are three things in this chapter that gave me a headache this week. And any time you're reading through and studying a passage, a lot of times you're going to bump into things that it's like, what in the world does that verse mean? Verse 3 I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Verse 20, wild beasts will honor me, jackals and ostriches. And verse 8, bring out the blind who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. If you were in school the word last week, we were talking about tools of biblical interpretation and one of them was noting conjunctions transitions in, in, in the flow of the passage. And you may have noticed that there's one at the very beginning of our passage. It begins with the words, but now, thus says the Lord. Now when we follow that clue, we find out who these blind people are. Look over in chapter 42, verse 18. Hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. See, this is this perfect parallel to verse 8. Who is blind but my servant? Many times in the Old Testament, servant is referred to as God's people, Israel. Who is blind? So he's, he's explicitly identifying. It's his people who are blind. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. Does that sound like verse 8? He has eyes, but he doesn't see. His ears are open, 
but he does not hear. Look again at verse 8. Who are deaf, yet have ears. Israel is blind. God's people that he formed and created is a blind people. The question is, what are they blind to? And if we read more in the context, we find out it's their worship. Their worship is like a blind man. It's, it goes in all directions. Their worship goes here. Their worship goes there. You ever played that game where you're blindfolded and you have to feel something and identify it? Israel's worship was something like that game. They would feel a metal image, a carved image, and it was as though they were blindfolded to actually see it. It was as though they were blindfolded and they would feel it and they would feel its little muscles and its little arms and say, oh, this, this thing is strong. Oh, th this is God. He says in verse 17, look at that. They're turned back and utterly put to shame. Who trust in carved idols? Who say to metal images, you are our gods. God's people are blind. Their worship is misdirected in a big way. And we are just the same way. Isn't that true? We, we blindly bow to material possessions. We, we cling to comfort in our lives as though to lack comfort is to lack God himself. We, we look at lust or sensual images as though they have the power to satisfy our hearts. We give them the attributes of God. We have eyes, but we fail to see. We catch ourselves in the middle of worship services to non-gods. <laughs> this is probably a common problem in families, but we could go home. This could be today. We could go home today, go in the side door. The kids could run straight through the living room, all three of them, one after another, jump over a scooter in the middle of the living room. That could be, that's a very common thing that happens around our house. It could be a sword, big, giant, blazing, Aragorn-looking sword in the middle of the living room. And they could just all hop like deer following each other. They all just hop right over the sword. And I could say, hey, 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 wait. How come all three of you just jumped over that scooter and nobody picked it up? And you know what their response is. One of them is going to represent, is going to turn around and say, we didn't see it. You didn't, you didn't see it. Do you see me? <laughs> Your eyes are following me. What? I see you, and it looks like you see me, and I see this. Look down. Look at that. You see that? It looks like you're looking at the scooter. That's, that's the worship problem of God's people. We, we know what rightly directed worship is supposed to look like, but so often we fail to see it. We catch ourselves worshiping other things, not realizing we've attributed God's attributes to something else, some created thing. The question is, now what? What does God do for people with misdirected worship who worship as though they're blindfolded? The answer from Isaiah 43 is, he shows us himself. And what does he show us about himself? Well, the first answer that comes from our text is, he says, you're mine. I have created you. You are a part of my covenant people. I, uh, not only do you belong to me, I belong to you. You see how often he uses that language? He turns around and says, I am your God. 
your Savior, your Holy One, your King. I am yours. You are mine. We are married. We are in covenant. That's what God says to his misdirected worshipers in order to direct us back so we see, yes, of course you are. You are our God. We want to worship you alone. God uses this knowledge, revealing himself so that that knowledge isn't just abstract theology. It sings in our hearts because God helps us to see how his grace has come and made us his people. Now, when we pick up on the flow of the context that leads us to chapter 43 and chapter 42, what we're reading in 43 comes completely unexpectedly. Look back at 42. Here's something of the progression and the movement. They're blind in verse 18 and 19. And so what does God do? He doesn't just sit there and let them wander aimlessly and destroy themselves. God comes to them, and it says in verse 21, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. Now, what is the law of God? The law of God in the Old Testament has at least two primary functions. One is to reveal the character of God. It is to say, know me, I am the God who has created and established this law. It reflects back on my own character. But secondly, the law of God exists to inform the worship of his people so that we know God's will and aren't intuitively feeling our way mystically and spiritually into, does God want this for me? Is this pleasing to God? God says, I'll tell you exactly what pleases me. I'll give you my law. And so God, when he sees them bumping around in blind worship, he comes and magnifies his law. He clarifies what worship is. But the problem is, even though the magnifying of the law of God is theoretically clarifying, it doesn't solve their worship problem because their hearts are still prone to wander. Even though they know the right things, they have eyes, but they don't see. So obviously God's people, they need something more than the simple magnifying of the will of God for their lives. So what does God do? He brings on them the weight of discipline, loving Discipline, that's what happens next. He sends them into exile. Look at the next verse. So I went and magnified my law and made it glorious, but this is a people plundered and looted. Now, How did they get plundered and looted? Look at verse 24. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we sinned? So God comes in discipline and he sends his people into Babylonian exile. And how do they respond to the heat of discipline? Look at verse 25. So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him, Israel, on fire all around. But Israel did not understand. The heat of exile burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. So here again, God steps in and says, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to bring discipline, loving discipline to my people to bring them back to a place where they worship and honor me. But do they respond to discipline? No. Even in the heat of discipline, they don't respond. Now what do you expect? If you haven't read Isaiah 43, what do you expect? The last thing I expect is Isaiah 43. 
I expect, okay, all right, so you were blindly worshiping other gods. You were saying to metal images that you yourself formed. And you were saying, you are our gods. And I came in and I magnified my law. In my grace, I showed you the way of righteousness. And you spurned me again. And so I brought discipline. I love you. I'm going to bring discipline to you. And even there, you hardened yourself in unbelief and didn't respond to discipline. Now what? Now if I'm walking through Isaiah 42, I'm, sp- I'm expecting right now, when he says, but now in 43, it's about to get ugly. <laughs> okay, all right, so I'm going to come in and show you the way and you're going to spurn me and I'm going to come and lovingly lead you back to myself and you're going to spurn me again. You better fear for what's coming next. But what happens in, verse, in chapter 43? But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, all right, I own you. I made you my people. This sounds very negative for me coming in. He who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Fear not? Is that what you were expecting in light of Israel's misdirected worship? Why would God say something like that? God has another way. Now, does God bring discipline to his people? Yes, absolutely. Verse 25 of chapter 42, I can guarantee, didn't feel good at all. It was painful. Look at the painful images of discipline. Sets them on fire. It's a serious image of discipline. Burned him up. But we should never think to limit God's ability to respond to a situation of his people being obstinate. We should never limit God's options to one. As though, okay, now that they've done that, you know what, the only thing God's got to do now, I mean, he's only got one more card in the deck. He's going to have to bring them down in a major, major way. As though that's the only option God has. That's not the, the, the action that God takes. God actually responds by coming to this misdirected people with the weapon of his kindness. He assaults his people with kindness. And friends, never underestimate the power of the kindness of God. What does the Apostle Paul say? The kindness of God gets done. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Incidentally, I wonder how often we exercise that in response to situations. How often when we see a resistant people or a friend who's resisting the truth or a child who's resisting our authority, how often we think there's only one more thing I can do. I'm just going to bring it down even harder. Yeah, yeah, there's another option. It's not always the option. God has brought discipline to our lives. There would be testimonies throughout this room that say that God's discipline is not always ineffective as it was here in chapter 42. There would be those of us who could raise our hands and say, the discipline of God saved me, rescued me from the edge of the cliff. I was in danger. But God always has options at his disposal. And here he exercises the option to come in mercy. Look at the language that's used. The very God who pours out heat and fire on them in 42 verse 25 says in 43 verse 2, when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame 
shall not consume you. Even in discipline, even in discipline, where does God locate himself in our passage? Look at verse two. When you pass through the waters of discipline, I will be with you. God is with us even in the discipline, even in the sufferings that we experience in this life. Let me just add here, that's the last thing the enemy of your soul is gonna tell you when you're going through suffering. He's gonna tell you God is a million miles away from you and it's probably because of what you've done and that's why God won't come back to you. No, no, God is saying here, even in the discipline, even in Babylonian exile, do not let the exile lie to you and say that your God has abandoned you. God reminds them of his presence with his people such that when Israel in about 120 years or so, when Judah goes into Babylonian exile, guess who goes with them? God passes through the waters, through the fire, carrying his people even in his own discipline. What a gracious God. Does that make you want to worship? That makes me want to worship God. He says, we are his people. How does God help his people worship and live for his glory in all things? He says, first, I have chosen you as part of my covenant people. You are mine and I am yours forever. Know this and worship. There's more. A people ransomed. There's a courtroom feel. If you read verses 9 through 13, there's a courtroom feel about this passage. God is calling all the nations together. He's calling the blind people, his own covenant people, and he's calling all the nations to be witnesses to how he has treated his people. And so he calls those witnesses. You can see that in verse 10. You can see that in verse 12. God is is basically here saying, when I say that you're my special people, that is not just talk. And case in point comes in verse 3. God's proof positive, sort of exhibit A in the case for God's care for his special people comes in verse 3. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Remember the situation in Egypt? God's people are subjugated. They're made slaves under Pharaoh. God comes, long story short, God comes through Moses, rescues his people, brings them through the Red Sea. He does that so that he says to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me. So Moses comes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Now what's God going to do? Look at this quote. Faced with Egyptian stubborn refusal to let the people go, the Lord, so to speak, weighed up, that means considered, the Lord, so to speak, weighed up whether he was prepared to shatter Egypt in an order to free Israel. There was no contest, and it was at the expense of Egypt that Israel was freed. Cush and Seba are respectively the extreme south of Egypt and lands still further south They are a poetical elaboration of the picture of the price paid. In your stead, that's his translation. It's also in ours, in verse 4, in exchange for. In your stead expresses one taking the place of another. Israel was under sentence of death, but Egypt died instead. Now, what does he mean by that? 
He's referring to two verses in the Bible. I've included them in your outline. Exodus 1. This is the decree from on high, the decree from the Pharaoh of Egypt. When you serve as midwife, you Egyptian women, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, here's the sentence of death on Israel, every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. The sentence of death was on Israel. But that is not how the story played out. What did God do in order to prevent Israel's sons from being cast into the Nile? He took up Egypt and cast it into the sea. God gave Egypt in exchange for Israel. And Cush and Seba were the places further south. In other words, he said, I would have paid even more if it took it to ransom my people, to buy them back. So, Exodus 14 says, note the parallel language. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And so we ask the question, to what lengths will God go to rescue his people, bent though they are on worshiping other gods? Will he give a great and glorious kingdom like Egypt to save them? He will, and he will do even more. You see where this points? See, the great exodus through which God ransomed his chosen people, not only Israel, but Jews and Gentiles and men from every tribe and tongue and nation, the great act through which God ransomed his chosen people is not seen when in exchange for them he throws Israel into the sea. It is seen when in exchange for sinners he hurls his own son into the sea of his wrath. He gives Christ in exchange for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be called the righteousness of God in him. Jesus knows this. As he comes on mission in Mark chapter 10 verse 45, he uses words to describe his mission that hearken back to Isaiah 43 and other passages where he says, the son of man did not come to be served. The son of man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom in exchange for many. He knew that. That was his self-awareness. His mission was to die for God's people, to give himself in exchange for God's people, to bear our sentence of death in our place. And this is why no event in history secures worship like the cross of Christ. Jesus said that. If I am lifted up on the cross, let me tell you what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm going to draw all men unto myself. Spurgeon called the cross the marvelous magnet which God uses to bring his people to himself. Why do we sing so many songs about the cross? It's because God says, I want 
to tell you something about myself to get your worship on track. And what is one of the things that he says to us? I've ransomed you at the greatest possible cost. My own son's blood bought you. You are mine. And so we celebrate that, and that births and incites a response of worship from our hearts. What motivates the worship of God's people in heaven? It's this same truth. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you for you are worthy because you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed men for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. How does God draw us out of addictions to fear and lust and pride and self-absorption? How does he deliver us from those things? How does God deal with our misdirected worship? He says first, I've chosen you. You are my covenant people. Know that and worship. And second, he says, I sent my son to stand in your place. Though the sentence of death was yours, he bore your punishment on the cross. Know that. Know that you're a people chosen, a people created, and a people ransomed. Know those things and worship. This is the summit. This is the climax of God's self-revelation to his people. But there's more. There's a people provided for. God's grace to his people, Israel, was not only past grace. It was present grace and future grace as well. The exodus of Egypt was the great redemptive event of the Old Testament. But God's people here in Isaiah 43 still look forward to the greater exodus where God would send Messiah and he would lead his people in procession out of slavery to darkness and sin and Satan, out from under the reign of unrighteousness. Jesus would lead the greater exodus, not Moses. And so they still look forward to that. Now in our position in redemptive history, where do we look? We look back to the greatest redemptive event in world history. And we celebrate that and we worship because of what was done there on the cross for us. And yet there is still something future for every one of us here who have turned from sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ. We were, in a sense, our Egyptian exodus was the great event of Christ's cross leading us out of darkness and into his light. But we're still here on this earth We're still living in a world subjected to futility. This is not home. We are exiles. And God wants to say to his people who are about to be exiled in Babylon, not in Egypt, this time in Babylon, he wants to say the same God who could bring you out of Egypt is going to get you out of Babylon. (laughs) I'm not just powerful enough to rescue you here. I'm powerful enough to come back and get you here for my purposes, for my glory. As Isaiah writes these things, you need to know, these people aren't in exile yet. This is about 750 to 700 BC. The northern kingdom is about to fall to Assyria, but Babylon isn't even the king of the hill yet. Assyria's the one that everybody's talking about. Babylon's not gonna come on the scene for another 100 years or so where they'll take power and they'll come and take the southern kingdom. This hasn't even happened. God is saying, Look, you're going to feel the effects 
of the Babylonian exile, and you're going to hear them knock on your door. Check me out. In about 100 years, Babylon's going to come and knock on the door, and they're going to say, we're taking you back home with us. You're leaving the promised land. And, and God wants to go on record now and say, when that happens, I promise you, I'm going to take you out of Babylon. I have power over every kingdom. I am the king over all the kings. I'm the Lord over all the lords. He knows his people's inclination that they're going to doubt. They're going to question whether God has the ability to do this. I think that's why he says in chapter 43, remember not the former things nor consider the things of old. Israel knew that God had the ability to dry up vast bodies of water. He had pulled that trick out of his bag before, right? That was legend. That was history. That was a matter of record. We know God can do that. Yes, God can look at giant pools of water and can make it a desert so that we can walk. But we're in a different situation in Babylon. We're in a desert. We know that we have a God who can make wet places dry, but can he make dry places wet? Because in Babylon, it feels different than Egypt. So God wanted to show his people how comprehensive his abilities are. I am a capable sovereign. I am a capable savior. The same God who could make water dry up can make deserts turn into rivers. That's what he says to his people. Thus says the Lord, look at the parallel language. Thus says the Lord who makes a way. You're going to see that phrase in just a second. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. This is the exodus. This is the exodus from Egypt. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. And then he says in verse 19, behold, I'm doing a new thing. I can do something else too. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way, not in the sea this time, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. What does this this say to us? How is God motivating our worship here? He's saying this, having chosen you, having ransomed you, Having spent all that I've spent on you, you think I'm going to leave you in Babylon? You think I'm going to desert you, my people? Remember, I created you. You are mine. I am yours. That promise sticks forever. I ransomed you. I am not going to leave you in Babylon. I will come again. I will bring Babylon down. Verse 14, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. God is going to provide for His people. He is going to rescue us ultimately. Verse 19 and 20, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. What are these wild beasts that are going to honor him? I think in light of the context and worship 
Israel's worship problem? God is saying something like this. Harnessing Israel's worship is like harnessing a wild beast. (laughs) You know, you go out into the desert and you want to get a jackal to come over to you. You want to get an ostrich or a wild beast to come over to you. Do you just say, here, jackal, jackal, jackal? (laughs) Can you just kind of call and hope that they'll come? God uses an effectual image of how he gets jackals and wild beasts to come and honor him. What is the image? He says, I got a way. We got a desert all around. Here's what I'll do. I'll make a river here. And then they'll come. And then the wild beasts will come and honor me. And I will effectively secure the worship of my people. Jackals, ostriches, they'll all come. The blind who have eyes but do not see, they will come here where I've provided for my people. God has provided for us a Savior who is everything that we need. What did Peter say when Jesus said, you're going to go away too? And Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? Wandering through the desert? This is where water is. If we leave here, we die. That's Peter's answer. Jesus says, I am bread for my people. Without me, they starve. Jesus is water for our famished hearts. He is living water, life-giving water for his people. What did he say to the woman in John 4? He said, if you knew me, you'd ask me for water because I can give you a cup of water that'll satisfy you into eternity. This is Christ, the all-sufficient Savior. Exactly what his people need. I think the closest parallel to Israel's exodus and exile in Babylon isn't so much the isolated situations of suffering in our lives. I think it's bigger than that. I think it's the fact that we are still here in exile. We are not home yet. I think that this text is pointing us all the way to the end. How much God in his word continually points us past the trappings and sufferings of this life to the one that is to come, to the hope, to the city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And one of the ways I think that's true is if you read the broader context of Isaiah. Turn over to chapter 35. There are so many parallels in chapter 35. And I think this chapter is one of the sweetest visions of our future existence with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 35. This is a promise similar to what we've already heard. The ransomed shall return. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Does that sound familiar? The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. There's worship before the presence of God forever. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. In other words, you guys, if you've ever been to or you've heard the legendary beauty of Lebanon, oh, this is going to have all that majesty and more. He says, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord. 
the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then, ah, the eyes of the blind. God's people, we have eyes, but we do not see. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for what's going to happen? Does it sound like Isaiah 43? For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of, there they are again, the jackals. Where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. It shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Nor lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord the ones that Christ was hurled into the sea to possess for God, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Why? Why, why has God done all these things? Why, why has he chosen us as his people? Why has he ransomed us with the blood of his own precious son? Why has he promised to provide everything that we need to endure and persevere while in exile because he's coming back to bring us home? Why does God say this to us? Why does God do this for us? Ultimately, you know why he does this? Verse 7 says, I do it for my glory. In verse 21, he says, I do it so that they might declare my praise. This is why we've been chosen. This is why we've been ransomed. This is why even now today we are being provided for by God. We are called to worship. We are called to live and serve and work and use our gifts so that God might be glorified, so that he might be praised. And we are called to know these things, not so that we can engage in discussions about salvation history. We are to know these things so that we worship the God who has done these things. That's why God revealed it to us in the first place. So what does worship have to do with real life? With hot tempers, graphic sensuality, chronic suffering, wayward children, a fearful diagnosis, discontentment. Worship has everything to do with those things. God takes a people weighed down with sin and weighed down by trials and suffering. And here's what he says to us, what he has said to us in Isaiah 43. He says, look at me. Know my grace and worship. 
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gift to us in saving us by your mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see your glory so that we respond to the ways in which you have revealed yourself and we respond with God-exalting, singing and Christ-exalting lives of worship. Let's stand together. forever I